Good morning. It's been about four weeks since I left off preaching the gospel of Mark. And today we're going to jump right back into the action. Right where we left off. Jesus and his disciples had crossed over the northern tip of the Lake of Galilee to the other side. And, and, and it is there that uh, a group... A delegation sent from Jerusalem comes of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now the question at hand in Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 23 is what makes a person unclean? What makes a person pure or impure? What is it that makes a person able to stand in the presence of God who is holy, thrice holy as the scriptures proclaim? This was the question of David when he wrote Psalm 15. He said, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He knows that God is holy. Who can dwell? Who can live in your presence? The answer, verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And the psalm goes on to paint a picture of a man who is godly, a man who listens to the Lord's ways and follows him. The Pharisees and scribes who come to Jesus from the uh, ruling council in Jerusalem, didn't come to ask that question. They thought they knew what was clean and what was unclean. They came instead to find fault with Jesus. And instead, Jesus shows that they are in the wrong. And Jesus identifies what is going on Very clearly. We see first that this is an authority issue. This really comes down to what is our authority? What authority were the the scribes and the Pharisees appealing to? By what authority did Jesus come and speak? What is authoritative for determining pure from impure? Secondly, this is a heart issue. You see, the source of impurity is not what is external, what is outside of us. The source of impurity, what defiles us, what makes us unholy, is our own heart. The very center of our own person. The religious leaders in Jerusalem had elevated the teachings of man over God's commands. And they emphasized external purity, like the washing of hands and the foods that we eat, not purity in heart. And the worst thing about all of this 
is that here they are claiming God's authority, claiming godliness, while holding their own Lord and God accountable to their own ways. In short, uncleanness, sin, is defined by God. And it's a matter of the heart. Follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. We're going to go just a section at a time because there's quite a bit in these 23 verses. Mark 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So we have these two parties that are mentioned here. have the scribes who were experts in the law. They knew it well. They had to memorize and to copy great portions of the law and the prophets. They followed different teachers who taught them. The Pharisees were a particular sect that believed purity could only be obtained by strictly following the rabbinic traditions, the teachings of the elders. So among the scribes and among the, the religious leaders and the synagogues of that day, they were of the strictest sort. Now, this is not the first time a delegation has come from Jerusalem, but I know it's been a long time since we were in Mark chapter 3. But in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, a delegation was sent from Jerusalem. Now, at that time, they said he was demon-possessed. And uh, that charge did not go very well for them. Didn't stick. This time, they come again, and they see another opportunity to undermine Jesus' authority. They find the disciples eating with unclean hands, and Mark, recounting the story and writing to many, uh, many Gentile, non-Jewish uh, Christians, would, would, he explains a lot of Jewish customs for us, which is helpful for us in our context. And so he, he tells us in verse 2, the reason they were considered unclean is because they were unwashed. 
And he talks about this tradition. This has to do with the tradition of the elders. They had all these other traditions as well. See, over time, what the teachers of the law had done is they had taken many of the rituals of the law, things like ceremonial washings given in the book of the law for the priests to do. Read about the requirements for priests in Exodus 30, Exodus 40. and There were different washings that they were to do before coming into the presence of God that, that were symbolic of what David writes about, having a pure heart. But the teachers of the law had begun to apply them to everyone in everyday life. And so they had all kinds of washings. Washing the cups and pots and and even some manuscripts add that the translation that I read this morning, ESV, includes the, the washings of dining couches. They they were very fastidious about these uh, these details, these external things. And the keeping of these traditions was a reflection in the Pharisees' teachings of a person's cleanliness before God. They they taught these things as the teachings of the elders as though this is what God required. So with this kind of background that Mark gives us, it it makes their question a little more understandable where they're coming from. They're saying Jesus' disciples really are defiled. They're not doing what they're supposed to. Now they're maybe not as brash as when they called Jesus demon-possessed, but they really are out to get Jesus. To pressure him into, really into saying that he's allowed the disciples to neglect the teachings of the elders. And boy, even the people would, would struggle with that because of the, the reverence that they had for so many of these teachers of the law. In past days. But Jesus has no time for playing games about this sort of thing. He gets right to the heart of the matter. The very authority, the very things that they were focusing on, were not. What God commanded. Listen to his words. Verses 6 through 8. And he said to them. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written. This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines. The commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God. And hold to the tradition of men. 
The scribes appealed to the elders. Jesus takes the words of the prophet of God, Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah sure described you well. Because he was talking about you, you hypocrites. You, you are actors making pretend, putting on a mask of righteousness, honoring God with lip service, but not from the heart. And this hypocrisy, the act of the Pharisees that they put on like a robe that looks really nice, it's made Evident, it's exposed, it's made clear by what? By the way that they taught man's commands as God's truth. And they left God's commands for man's traditions, man's teachings. The heart that's far from God will soon make much of man's teachings and little of God's word. How do we know they, they were teaching man's commands and elevating them over the word of God? Well, Jesus gives a very clear example. It's one of many. The scribe's error is exposed in the example Jesus gives in verses 9 through 13. Let me read that. Verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, it is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay. Jesus is pretty clear here. He quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, and then likewise uh, later on in the law, whoever reviles father or mother, whoever insults them, treats them with dishonor, must surely die. That should be a no-brainer for a God-fearer, for somebody who says that they know and follow the law of God. You don't treat your parents with disrespect. You care for them when they're old, when they cannot care for themselves. We've gotten so far from that in our society. We don't understand what it is to care for the elderly the way that they did. Bringing them into their home. <laughs> making sure they had food that they needed. They had all the help that they needed. They should have really known better. It's not like they were brought up without discipline. It's not like they were 
brought up without being taught these things. And yet, for all of their supposed concern for purity, the scribes and Pharisees had, as Jesus put it, a fancy way of getting around the law of God. They had a tradition that effectively relieved sons of their responsibility to obey the fifth commandment, the very command of God to honor their father and their mother. The provision of, of Korban, which Mark tells us that he gives his translation, that is given to God. Something is Korban or given to God. It was a practice of devoting an offering to God. And so a person would swear with an oath that X, Y, and Z, whatever it was, a piece of property or some funds, the extra funds that they had or, or some cattle, whatever it was, that was gift, a gift to God. Now, they weren't supposed to touch it for their own gain. Whether they did or not, I don't know. But the setting is this. What if that vow conflicts with caring for your parents? I just think how easy it would be to kind of rashly say, my property over here is to God, you know, to be pious. But then when push comes to shove, you can't care for your parents. So you just tell your parents, I gave it to God. And... Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the judges in the court of law would say, well, you need to keep that vow. That vow became to them more important than what God said. Became more important than their God-given obligation to help and care for their parents. They taught people to throw out God's law in order to keep their tradition. That is wrong. And Jesus concludes, you make the word of God, verse 13, void. It's worthless. Because in effect, it is not God that governs their lives. No matter how much they might say they obeyed God, they had a double standard. When we look at this, I want to draw out a principle here. Because trust me, it's so easy to say, those fools... Those Pharisees and not understand what was going on, that we might repeat and do the same foolish things. At bottom, this is first a matter of authority. The Pharisees and the scribes were looking to the teachings of man over and above God. 
Maybe they would have said, well, it's just on kind of on par or just a little bit lower, you know. Sure, God's word is above, but practically speaking, they were living by what man said, what a particular teacher said, not what God said. And this makes void the word of God. It makes it worthless. It makes it useless in a person's life if we, we sort of hold the word of God in, in, in reverence, but practically we deny it. We ignore it. And we listen to the teacher that says what we want to hear. But sin is defined by God. What is clean or not clean is defined by God and not by people. So what authority do you look to practically, really, in your life? Can you say, I, I will let God define what He says is right. I want to do. I know I am not going to be perfect about this and I need his grace but that's what I want and that's what I'm going to look to that's a humble person person who admits there might there are inconsistencies I do look to man rather than God at times but I'm not wanting to play the hypocrite and to look good By following what man says. Rather than God. We have to, to acknowledge. The areas where we have been. A hypocrite. And desire. That God's word would be. What tells us. Pure. True. Truth. And what is good. And what is right. There's another issue at play here. It's not just that they were looking to the teachings of man, though that is huge. But it is also their focus on external things. They located uncleanness on the outside. Jesus calls the people to himself. Verse 14 and he teaches them the truth about the origin of impurity. Where does sin come from? Verses 14-15. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus states a principle here. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. Now later, let me repeat that again. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. Later at the disciples' request, Jesus says more 
verses 17 through 20. And when he had entered the house and left the people, so he said that in, in, in public before all the people, and then his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, verse 18, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's then expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. Since the disciples had trouble understanding, Jesus explains his point with a little more description. Food enters the stomach, not the heart. And it goes out of the body and into the sewer. That's what happens to the food that you eat. Jesus says, therefore, that's not the food that's the issue. Because it has not entered his heart. The heart is the center of one's being. It's the seat of the mind, the will, and our emotions. In other words, it's where we, it's where we think. It's where we desire things. We, we long for certain things. And, and choose, make decisions. It is our inner person. David Garland puts it plainly. A supposed relationship with God that bypasses the heart is a mockery. To talk about having a relationship with God on the basis of the sorts of food that you eat or whether you wash your hands or not is meaningless. If we bypass the, the heart, our very person, We've lost the point entirely. We don't have a relationship with God. If that's what we're going to emphasize. If we leave out the heart. Why? Because it's out of the heart, Jesus says elsewhere, that the mouth speaks. That the hands go and, and uh, grasp hold of things. That our feet walk. The source of defilement in our lives is what taints our own heart. Sin springs from the inside. Jesus continues, verses 21 to 23. For from within, he makes it abundantly clear here. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Here Jesus is not only abundantly clear where sin comes from, but he also sums up the sorts of things that actually defile us. Some of these things on the list might have seemed obvious to the people. They knew the Ten Commandments, you know. Theft and murder and adultery, they're wrong. But the list continues. Evil is more subtle and pervasive than that. Than some of the big three, if you will. Sins. Deceit. And envy and pride, Jesus says, are at work within us. What actually defiles us is the evil in our own hearts. Unwashed hands is not the problem. The problem is in us. You know, the world tells us the problem is somewhere out there. It's the environment you were brought up in or you had a bad, bad lot given to you, just born this way. The source of defilement lies within our own soul. Do we come to grips with that? We're going to look to all the wrong remedies like the Pharisees who measured the man by how well they washed their hands. We need help from outside of us to change us from the inside out. We need a heart replacement not just cosmetic surgery or new clothes. Jesus' words here expose the real danger to all of us, the sin that separates us from God and places us under his judgment. That the depth of our sin runs deeper than what we wear or how we wash ourselves. We need the new heart that God has promised to whoever would believe in Jesus, the Messiah. See, he who is truly blameless, something that the Pharisees couldn't claim, something that the down and out fishermen couldn't claim, he was truly blameless. And he died in our place and he rose again. So that we would be given the free gift of a new life. To be given a new heart that longs after the things of God. That thirsts for him and that loves him. Given a new spirit. That's our only hope. Jesus Christ. And that's what this exposes. The people that, that they would have. That the, uh, the average person person in the crowd would have thought 
while they're a pretty holy guy, they too need a Savior. They've been playing the hypocrite, an actor, not really following God the way that He calls us to. Jesus Christ is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle John calls us to to confess our sins then and trust that He is faithful and just, that He will forgive us of our sins. That is our only hope. I want you to listen carefully for a moment. You've been listening good, don't worry. But I think this is important. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is the only one who can cleanse us from the inside out and save us completely. The gospel will always be obscured or distorted wherever sin is redefined. But where people heed God's definition of sin, where they recognize that sin dwells within them, the gospel will flourish. There are a lot of works and washings and new clothes that people put on to cover up the rot in their hearts. And they won't ever work except to fool some of the neighbors. Maybe. We can tell ourselves, you know, I haven't done the big three. Murder, haven't slept with somebody else. Besides my, my husband or my wife, haven't really stolen anything of, of value. This kind of legalistic thinking, this kind of pride in, in our outward appearance and in our, our acts. It hasn't gone away. The Pharisees of Jesus' day don't have the corner on that kind of hypocrisy. Looking to external things. But not willing to acknowledge the depth of sin in their own hearts. But there are other ways of redefining sin. And one of those ways is to eradicate it. Get rid of it. Today we live in a culture that has basically completely eradicated the concept of sin. Everybody's a nice, good, kind person. Maybe they've been given a bad lot, so they fell into some things they shouldn't. But... We're all good people, right? 
And it's a way of making us all feel nice about wherever we're at and whatever we're doing. To where we can call abortion noble and we can say that sexual perversion is love. It's love. And love is love, right? You can't... <laughs> sure, that's, that's a helpful definition. Read John, 1 John chapter 4. God will tell you what love is. And people that call themselves Christians. And we can be, uh, be tempted to go on the nice train. Not saying just be rude to people. We can be tempted to compromise what God says is right and what God says is wrong. And, and while claiming to love the Lord our God, we can no longer listen to God. And we can trade God's commands for the teachings of man. Like the teaching that we're all basically good. My heart breaks to think about the judgment to come on those that think they know God. But don't accept his word about sin. Don't accept where sin comes from. That it is, it's within, it's within me. Thanks be to God that he could save me from this body of death, Paul said. That it is only because of him that we can be set free from sin. It is good for us to be reminded Jesus taught us. Who defines sin? God does. Not man. And sin comes from our own hearts. When we believe this, when we believe God, we're brought to the foot of the cross where our only hope is found. If you skip that, you will never come to the cross. You will be proud in your self-righteousness or living in, in rejection of God. When we know the depth of our sin, our sin, we come to Jesus for mercy. And today as we partake Together of the Lord's table, we come in, in, a, in a literal sense to taste and see the goodness of God as displayed by the bread and the cup that we partake of together. This is a time to examine ourselves, to confess the sins that entangle us still. And to repent of the ways that we've set aside God's commands.
Maybe it's a way that we've been listening to mankind. Maybe it's a way that we've been passing off the blame to something else, someone else. As we do that, it's a time to rejoice at the kindness of God. That through Christ, the scripture is fulfilled. No matter how unclean how deep sin runs in our soul God says through the prophet Ezekiel I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness from all your idols I will cleanse you. This promise is fulfilled. It is a yes in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Amen.